0: are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come to you by your Holy Spirit, praying Uh, For your power, Lord, praying for the manifest presence of your glory in this place, Lord. You have promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. Not not for a moment. Not in our past. Not right now. Not ever in the future. You will never leave us. We hold on to that promise. But God, we pray right now, in this moment, right now, that we would hear your voice coming through your word, God. I pray for uh, myself, Lord. I pray that as I proclaim your word, that I would that I would preach it, that I would teach it, God, with faith, believing that it is living and active and can bring about life transformation. I pray for everyone who can hear my voice right now, Lord. I pray for all of our ears, that we would that we would hear your, hear your word, hear your voice by faith, that we would allow you to speak with us, and that we would be forever changed. So God, we need you. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You know, there comes a time in uh, a nation or a society, a culture, where the need for leadership is absolutely desperate. Where people, everyone sees it, everyone recognizes it. We need someone to lead us. Imagine a society where the degrading objectification and mistreatment of women was just normalized, even celebrated. Where war and terrorism, murder and rape were just everyday occurrences. Where politicians uh, outmatched their corruption only by their incompetency. Where religious leaders time and time again revealed that they were more hypocritical than they were holy. Where moral relativism and an idea that anyone can just define their own right and wrong and do and behave however they want to behave. A a younger generation filled with entitlement and indulgence and self-absorption. And dysfunctional families with parents that enable their children rather then discipline them. Can you imagine a world like that? You probably think I'm talking about North America in 2017. I'm actually talking about the people of God about a thousand BC. The world that I was describing just then is a word for word accurate picture description of the life style and the society that is, that is portrayed in the books of First and 2 Samuel, a time in which the people of God were searching for a king. And so we're starting a new series today called Searching for a King, and we're going to go verse by verse, line by line, through these two great books of the Old Testament. So get your Bibles in your hand. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers will help you out before we get to 1 Samuel, We're going to turn to the book of Genesis. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and usher can pass one to you. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. We're going to trace this theme of kingship uh, through the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. It says, and God blessed them and God said to them, he's speaking to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And notice this, and have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were commanded, commissioned to have dominion. Human beings were were created to rule as vice regents, as deputy monarchs under the kingship of God. Adam and Eve were supposed to be king and queen of the world. They were commanded to rule. But of course that went all wrong uh, two chapters later in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve chose to sin. And, and, and rather than settling to be deputy monarch, they wanted to be the monarch. Satan said, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And so they, they staged a coup. They wanted to take God's throne. But God stayed on his throne. But Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God. They were were taken off their throne, and that's why Satan, who's the one who tempted them, that's the one why he's called in the New Testament, the prince of the power of the air. Why he's called the ruler of this present world. Satan is ruling. That's why we need a king. And then throughout the, the rest of the Old Testament, turn to Genesis chapter 17, we see God establishing a plan to bring his people back, and a king is part of the plan. You have, the, you have the, the, the flood narrative with Noah, then he calls Abraham, and look at what he promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse six. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and notice this, and kings shall come from you. Uh, Having a king was always part of God's plan. Then you get into the book of Exodus where God went toe to toe. Turn to Exodus chapter 15 with the most powerful king on planet earth at the time, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And uh, he, he destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea and the, the people of Israel marveling at the incredible power of God. They sang a worship song and the last line of that song in Exodus 15 verse 18 says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. This reminder that God is indeed the king over all the world. Now turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. So you skip over um, Leviticus and uh, Numbers and get to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. And uh, this is right before the people are about to go enter into the promised land. They're on the plains of Moab and, and Moses is preaching a series of sermons uh, to them. And he says this in in Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. This is what God says, verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. You see, God had a plan. Kingship was part of God's eternal purpose for bringing people back to himself. The book of Deuteronomy ends and the book of Joshua begins. Joshua takes the baton. He carries it forward that that Moses passed him. Joshua was not a king. He was a conqueror. And and by God's grace, they they conquered the, the promised land. But then after the book of Joshua, we have the book of Judges. Now Judges spiritually, politically, and socially is the equivalent of a tire fire. It's a mess. It's out of control. It looks awful. It smells awful. Someone's got to do something about this. And this is how the narrator sums up all the awful things that happened in the book of Judges. Look at right at the end of this tragic book. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you turn one page, you see it's the book of Ruth. Ruth begins by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. That's why Ruth is placed there. But in the Hebrew Bible, when you turned your page after the book of Judges, the next book was not Ruth. Ruth came later. The next book was the book of 1 Samuel. This society that so desperately needed a king. And for Samuel is the story of how God's people were searching for a king. Uh, spoiler alert. You ready for this? The king is Jesus. Okay, we're not going to wait until, you know, the middle of May 2018 when we come to the end of 2 Samuel where I'm going to tell you, oh, it's all about Jesus. Actually, I'm going to tell you right now. The king is Jesus. He is the greatest of all kings. The king of kings and the Lord of Lords. And today we're going to look at three reasons why Jesus is the greatest of all kings. And, and there, there's three main characters, just to give you a, a brief overview of first and Second Samuel. There's three main characters. There's Samuel after whom the book is named, we're going to study the circumstances surrounding his birth today. And then there's Saul, who was the first king of Israel, and then there's David, through, through whom God established a, a dynasty, the, the line. The line that Jesus was was in. So there's three main characters for loved ones. The main character, the real protagonist in the story is not Samuel or Saul or David. It is God himself. He is the one who is orchestrating all of this. And we're going to see today three reasons why he is the king of kings. Three reasons why he is the Lord of lords. Here's the first one. God is with us in our pain. God is with us in our pain. There's no other king like him. There's no no rock like our God. God is not off like other kings, you know, off in some castle, sitting on their throne, surrounded by layer after layer after layer of security, totally out of touch with the population. No, we have a king who is with us who's not just out in his throne in the castle, who comes to us in, our, in the hospital at our bedside, who comes and hugs us and wipes away our tears. This is the kind of God that is our king. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph and Ephrathrite. I bet you're riveted right now. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. The person's pain that we're going to be talking about today. We all have our own pain. We all have our own situations, our own circumstances. We're going to look at Hannah's pain today. First off, we know things aren't right when it says that the man had two wives. And we're gonna see this throughout the whole book of first and second Samuel. I'm sorry, it's not gonna get any better when when even when David is king. But this was never God's intention. This is a, just a sign that something is wrong with the society, something is wrong with the world. When 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 a society starts to twist and turn what marriage is, you know that something is wrong. This is not God's intention. God did not create Adam and Eve and Jessica It's not the three shall become one flesh, it's two. And so something has gone horribly wrong here. So the first part of Hannah's pain is that she is trying to survive and live in a polygamous marriage. Not only that is that she is infertile. It says here that Panana had children and Hannah had no children. If you notice that Hannah is listed first, chances are she was the first wife, and Panina was probably brought into the marriage after uh, Hannah was unable to conceive and have a child. That that, that Panina was brought into the marriage to produce an heir. She had no children. Maybe you're here today and you you yourself are experiencing the the unique pain and anguish that that goes with with infertility, man or woman. Maybe maybe you deeply care about someone who is having a a similar struggle. We need to understand that God is with us in our pain. Hannah was experiencing this, this kind of Pain. Hannah was was experiencing it in the same way someone would in our day, but there were added layers. The the burden was even heavier for someone living at Hannah's time. The the, the first reason was that children meant a prosperity for your family. Prosperity for in, in, in an agriculturally driven economy, in an agrarian society. More children meant that your family would be more prosperous. Yesterday, uh, I went outside. Lindsay was already out there with our four boys, and I thought we were going to play street hockey or something, but we were raking leaves, apparently. And, um, and the leaves on our lawn and the leaves on the grass uh, uh, in the, the park across the street, and there's le- the, uh, my kids are kind of at the stage right now where they're making more mess than progress, you know what I'm saying? But I just kind of had this vision of like, what will this be like 10 years from now? I'm not going to have a touch of rake. I'm not going to have to cut the grass. I'm not going to have to shovel a driveway. Because more laborers. <laughs> Listen, and that, that's true just for, for yard work at the Duncan house. How much more so, right? When, if, if, if you're farming, you have all of this free labor. The more kids you have and as they grow into teenagers and, and adults. So it meant more prosperity for your family. It also meant provision for your future. Lindsay and I, you know, every month we're putting away money for our retirement. Back then they had no RRSPs. Your retirement plan was your children. Your children were the ones who looked after you. And so, and so if you didn't have children, there was that sense of insecurity of what's going to ha- what if I get sick? What's going to happen to me? When, when my husband dies, well, what, what's going to happen to me when my other siblings die? Who's going to look after me? Who's going to care for me? It also meant protection for the community. More, uh, more children it didn't just mean more laborers. It also meant more soldiers to protect your village, to protect your nation if enemies were to invade. But then most painfully was this, and there is a parallel in our In our present culture as well. You see, in Hannah's day and in our day, we we call children, you know, little blessings. And God blessed us with with a child. But when we do that, we we can so often create this, this, this false dichotomy, this either or sort of thinking. If having a child means I'm blessed, then what does it mean if I don't have a child? Because if we're just thinking sort of in a binary way, then there would be having a child means you're blessed, so then not having a child means that you're cursed. And we would never come out and say that, but sometimes in the way that we talk about children, we don't realize how we're making other people feel in the way that we are addressing those kinds of issues. Verse 3 says, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tabernacle uh, was set up permanently in the promised land. Where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Verse 5, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Do, do you see the, the repetition there? The Lord had closed her womb. You see, when God is present with us in our pain, he's not present with us in the the popular thinking of why bad things happen to good people and this sort of therapeutic uh, approach to theology, this idea that, yeah, God is with us, but he's with us kind of being like, oh, there's nothing I can do. I wish I could help, but I can't. These these weaker, idolatrous uh, depictions of God as though he didn't know the future, as though he weren't all powerful. No, you see, God is present with us in our pain, and God... Is sovereign over our pain. That there are times when he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. We follow him there. But he is sovereign. He has has the power to lead us into difficult circumstances. He has the power to lead us out of those difficult circumstances as well. So he was present with her. I mentioned how it's really important that we need to be careful the way that we talk with people who uh, don't have children. We don't always understand the, the story uh, behind them. And sometimes we can, we can accidentally be, be quite insensitive and quite hurtful. Quite accidentally. But Penina wasn't doing it on ac- by accident. Verse 6 says, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Hannah's grieving because of the way that Penina is treating her. She's, she's so upset. She's so uh, vexed by it. Oh, Hannah, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got all this laundry, you know. It's just as soon as I get something clean, you know, one of the little ones gets it all dirty again. I'm just so overwhelmed. Do you know what I mean? Oh, you don't know what I mean, do you? Oh, what I could give for a good night's sleep. You know, this one's nursing and there's an ear infection over here and they keep crawling into our bed. I'm up in the middle of the night and then, you, do you know what I mean? No, you don't, do you? What do you do with all your spare time anyway? And notice, this, this wasn't just something acute. This wasn't just something that happened over a matter of days. Look at verse 7. So it went on year by year. Penina just talking away, just wagging her tongue. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more, than, am I not more to you than ten sons? Oh, Alcana! I know you're trying to help. I know he's trying to help because I'm a man. And I know what it's like and I try to say something that's helpful and I can tell by the expression on the face and the body language, I'm in mid-sentence and I'm like, this isn't helping. Alcana, am I not worth more to you than, than ten sons? Well, let's start with the fact that Hannah... Only has half of you because you've brought Penina into this marriage. How about let's stop sweet talking Hannah and let's tell Penina to knock it off? Like, seriously, he's allowing this to happen and to go on. But the real problem with Alkana here. And and we do this. Again, the intentions are good. But how does he try to comfort Hannah? Am I? Look at me. We try to help our friends by telling them, you know, I love you. I'm there for you. I'll do anything for you. Anything that I can do to help. Look at me. When we shouldn't be saying, look at me. We should be saying, look at the Lord. A good friend is not a painting. A good friend is a window A good friend is not something that we just look at and admire. A good friend is something who we look right through and see something bigger and more beautiful on the outside. That is true friendship. That is what we need to do as a church, that in people's pain, yes, be there for them, but remind them that it's not just you that's there for them. To love them and to lead them towards the Lord. Verse 7 says, after they had eaten and Drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. God is with us in our pain. We need to pray our pain. She's weeping as she's praying. Psalm uh, Psalm 56 verse 8 says, God stores our tears in a bottle. I'll jot this down secondly. God's present with us in our pain and he is with us in, and, and he's listening to us when we pray he's listening to us when we pray here's what she prays in verse 11 and she vowed a vow and said "O lord of hosts if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give your servant a son then i will give him to the lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head Uh, No razor shall touch his head. You can just write in the margin of your Bible, uh, Numbers chapter 6. She's referring to something called a Nazarite vow. When when someone wanted to devote themselves to the Lord for a season, a a temporary commitment to serve God, they would take a Nazarite vow. And there are all these stipulations of things that they needed to do. But one of the things, during that time, they weren't supposed to cut their hair. She is, she is saying that my child, he's not going to decide to be a Nazarite. I'm going to make him a Nazarite. And it's not going to be temporary. It's going to be for his entire life. Now, so, some of us would read this and think, well, is, is Hannah kind of bargaining with God? You know, is this sort of like, a, like a, a, sort of a, a desperate woman saying, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And I think we've all prayed a prayer like that sometime. But bargaining happens between peers, between equals. You're the merchant, I'm the consumer, and we, we talk about I'll give you this if you give me that. And both people are in need. God doesn't need servants. He doesn't need Nazarites. God doesn't need to be, to be looked after by, by other people. God has everything that he needs. And Hannah understands that. Do you see how she refers to herself three times? It's almost awkward to read it. She says, your servant, your servant, your servant. She knows she's not talking to a peer. She knows she's not talking to someone who needs something. No, she's talking to the master, and she's the servant. And I'm afraid sometimes when I pray, I talk as though I'm the master and God's the servant. Please do this. Help me with that. Bless this person. Fix this. But Hannah's got it right. You're the master, I'm the servant, and even what I'm asking you to give me, a son, I want to use that son to serve you. It's all about you. Verse 12 says, she continued praying before the lie, before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Verse 13, Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore... Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, Eli is a piece of work, okay? And uh, Pastor Marv next week is going to talk about Eli and his, his two sons. But isn't it interesting that here is someone who is truly seeking God with Everything they have. And the religious leader, Eli, can't even see it. True spiritual devotion is staring him right in the face. And he he thinks she's drunk. He's become so accustomed with the rituals and the routines and this is what we do. That when someone actually comes who truly loves God. He can't even recognize it. Isn't that true of the church today? Could that be true of our church today? That if someone were to come in here who was truly on fire for God, who was truly trusting him and truly living by faith, that we would look at that. We might not say that they're drunk, but we would say, you know, there's, there's, there's something weird with that, with that woman. Something strange about, about that guy. The way that he prays, the way that, the way that he sings, the way that he talks about God. So Hannah explains, verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. I love this. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what prayer is? I am pouring out my soul before the Lord. That's what we did last Sunday night as a church. We got together for our house of prayer, a prayer meeting. It was an amazing time. We kept it really simple. And we just opened up God's word and we just poured out our soul to God in prayer. She says, verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking about my great anxiety and vexation. This is why we pour out our soul, because this is what prayer is. We have something in us that we can't keep in us. For, for For Hannah, it was anxiety, it was vexation, it was all the things that Penina was saying to her. And she was pouring them out before the Lord. What do you need to pour out before God? Verse 17, then Eli answered, go in peace. And the Lord God of Israel, sorry, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer Sad. Uh, Hannah did not walk away that day pregnant, but she did walk away with her face no longer sad. Hannah's story does end with a pregnancy. Not every infertile person is going to have their story end with pregnancy, but it can end with them walking away no longer Sad. You see, what, what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 1 is, is like this real-life, uh, historically uh, faithful dramatization of Philippians, 4, chapters, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Which says, do not be anxious about anything. She, she had anxiety and vexation in her heart. She poured it out before the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. That's what verse 6 says. And then verse 7 says, And, say it with me, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so she, she was full of vexation and anxiety. She poured it out before the Lord. But when we pour ourselves out before the Lord, God doesn't leave us empty. No, he fills us with the peace of God. He fills us with a sense of hope and faith. We, may, we might not know exactly how it's all going to work out. But we know that he's going to be with us. He's listening when we pray. God is, 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 is not like kings today. You, 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 can't get an, you can't get an audience with, with our, our, our present monarch. You can't get an audience with, with the prime minister. It's even hard to get an audience with your MP these days. You know, you, you write a letter, you try to arrange a meeting, things get scheduled and rescheduled, and then you've got 15 minutes to try to say it. God is listening when we pray. We have access to the king of kings, not just some elected official, not just some ruler. We, he is listening. He is concerned about the things, believe it or not, he's concerned about the things that we are concerned about. He cares for us. Verse 19, they they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Verse 11, that's that's what her prayer was, remember me, Lord. And so that prayer got answered. Verse 19, the Lord remembered her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, which means name of God. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his words. The woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up. With her, along with a three year old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Notice this, and the child was young. Imagine that as a mother. Verse 25 Then they Slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, making a praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, And Hannah prayed and said, and she begins this incredible worship song. Here's the third reason why there's no rock like our God. The third reason why he's a king like no other king is because he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our praise. Of present day kings and rulers, you know, when they enter into a room, there's a lot of ceremony and pageantry and pomp and circumstance and all of this. But there's only one who's truly worthy to be worshipped. There's only one that's truly worthy to receive glory and honor and praise and adoration. It's the Lord. That's why she says, my my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, uh, Hannah did not have a horn, okay? Um, It's a poem. And in Hebrew poetry, a a horn is a, a symbol of strength. Strong animals have horns. And so a horn is, is synonymous with the idea of strength. So she's all of her strength is used to exalt the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly, Panina. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, Panina. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So I'm not, not going to judge you, Panina. The Lord will judge you. The Lord, by him actions are weighed. Not just the things that are done, but the motives that lie behind what's done that we so often don't see. God is a God of knowledge. And based on his omniscient judgment, he carries out perfect justice. Then in verses 4 and verse 5, we have these contrasts, these reversals of the weak becoming strong and the strong becoming weak. Which really, it sets the tone for the whole book of First and Second Samuel. It says, uh, the, the, the bows of the enemy are broken, but the feeble... Bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has born seven. But she who has many children is forlorn. Now, Hannah hadn't born seven, but she, she had born one. <laughs> but again, it's, it's poetry. She went on to bear uh, five more children. She never got to seven. But it's because seven, it's, again... It's a poem. Seven is a symbol of completion. It's a symbol of more than enough. It's a symbol of abundance. And then she talks about the sovereignty of God. Verse verse six, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. She talks about the beginning of life and the end of life. She's talking about the sovereignty of God. He's in charge of the beginning. He's in charge of the end. He's in charge of the whole thing in the middle as well. Verse 7 The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guide the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. It's not not our power or our strength that brings success or brings victory. The battle belongs to the Lord. This, This poem, this song with these reversals, this sets the tone for the whole book. It's not the older, bigger, stronger sons of Jesse who get picked to be king. It's the younger, weaker son, David, who wasn't even invited to the audition. They had to go get him. It's a reversal. It's not big and mighty Goliath who wins the victory. It's that same little kid with a couple of rocks in his pocket. That The the weakness is, is, is the backdrop for God to manifest his incredible power. To humble those who consider themselves strong. Verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's interesting here that she mentions king. They didn't have a king then. But remember that that when Hannah poured out all of her worry and anxiety and hurt and pain and prayer. God also filled her with hope and with faith. And so this is really a statement of faith. She believes that the world won't go on like this. Men should not treat women this way. Penina should not talk that way. Someone needs to come and make things right. And so she she is speaking, she is praising by faith. That God is going to send a king, and this king is going to be anointed. That was Samuel's job, was to anoint the king, to pour oil on the king. And the, uh, that, that word anointing is the word Messiah, which is a translated in the New Testament as Christ. Christ is that ultimate anointed king. And it's interesting. We're we we're, we're dealing with a, a narrative here of a, of a of a pregnancy and a birth. And Mary, when she became a pregnant, there's a lot of parallels between Hannah's situation and Mary's situation. Both of them felt like social outcasts. Both of them had other people looking at them as though they were somehow cursed. And Hannah's situation is because she couldn't have a child. She couldn't get pregnant. and Mary's situation, it's because she was pregnant. But both of them knew what it was to have other people on the outside judging them and talking about them. But after Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, she sings a song. And the song sounds strangely familiar. It's like it's a second verse to an old song. Because Hannah said in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, she said, my heart exalts in the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Hannah said, there is no one holy like the Lord. And Mary said in Luke 1 holy is his name. Hannah said, talk no more so very proudly. Mary said, he has scattered the proud. Hannah said, those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary said, he has filled the hungry With good things. You see, Mary used Hannah's story to encourage her to seek the Lord and to make sense of her incredible situation that she found herself in. God is worthy of our praise. Hannah prayed and praised the Lord. Mary prayed and praised the Lord. Hannah's child would be Samuel, who would anoint the king. Mary's child was Jesus, who was the king. Hannah named her child Samuel, saying that that giving him the name of God. Mary's child was Jesus. He was God. And here's here's the incredible thing. I didn't mention it, but all throughout the chapter and a half that we just read, there's these repeated references to going to Shiloh to make sacrifices. Time and time again, going to Shiloh to make sacrifices. You see, the king that is worthy of our praise is not just worthy because he's the king. He's worthy because he's also the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. Because yes, Hannah felt isolated. Yes, Hannah felt like she was living under a curse. Yes, Hannah felt a sense of shame. But the shame went deeper than just simply infertility. And the shame didn't just belong to Hannah. The shame belonged to everyone living on planet Earth. It belongs to you. It belongs to me. Not just that we're socially outcasts, but that we're spiritually outcasts because of our sin. But Jesus came as our king and as our sacrifice. Jesus came as the king. He was the one who was worthy to be blessed and to receive honor. And the one who should have been blessed and should have received honor went to the cross to pay for our sin. And rather than blessing and honor, he received curse and shame. Our curse and our shame. That is why he is worthy of our Praise. Revelation 19.16 has this image of Jesus. The ultimate king who will finally come and make all things right. And there's all kinds of imagery of how Jesus appears. And, and, but there's one thing that's crystal clear. There is a name that is written on his robe and on his thigh. And that name, the name of the one who came to be the sacrifice, who came to lay down his life so that we could have the gift of eternal life. His name in Revelation nineteen sixteen is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come to you in the name of that great king. Thank you, God, that you're with us in our pain. You hear our prayers, God you are truly worthy of our praise because you, you not only come to us and help us in our pain, but you yourself experienced pain for our sin and suffering and dying on the cross. Suffering and dying for sins like times in which where we're, we're, we're no better than Penina, where we use our mouths to wound people who are already wounded, where we criticize and mock people about things. They can't even change themselves. Forgive us for that, Lord. God, for sins like Alcana's, where we just can't help but think that we're the center of the universe and we're the good news for the people around us, making life all about us and not about you. Forgive us, God. God, forgive us for all the times where we're looking for kings in all the wrong places. Because if we want to see the true king, we need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ and the amazing sacrifice that he made for us. And so God, as we take these symbols, the symbols of Christ's body and Christ's blood in our hands, we pray that by your spirit, God, that you would draw us closer to you. That you would truly commune with us in this moment. That we would bow before you as our king that we would marvel at this amazing love and ask, how can this be that you, my king, would die for me? It's in the name of that king. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.